0: listeners, Jacko's Wetsuit here. Just wanted to let you know that this is a special episode of the NK News podcast that we recorded to commemorate the anniversary of the signing of the armistice that ended the Korean War in 1953. That date was July 27th, and this episode is scheduled for release on exactly that day, July 27th. And so to commemorate that, I thought it would be interesting to invite a special guest on uh, dick underwood who's uh, in his 90s a korean war veteran uh, and you'll hear a very special story from him so we hope you'll enjoy this podcast thanks hello listeners and welcome to the nk news podcast i'm your host jacko swetsloot today it's the morning of sunday june 27th in seoul but in usa central time it's 8pm on saturday june 26th where i'm joined via zoom by my guest Richard Underwood, to talk about his experiences before and during the Korean War. Before we do that, I'd like to remind you, please, to leave a review about this podcast wherever you can and share this episode with everyone you know and for people you don't. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. If you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, which helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every day. And if you have any feedback, questions or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. All right, so to more fully introduce my guest today, Richard, or Dick Underwood, was born in Seoul in 1927. He was the third generation of Underwoods to live in Korea. He joined the U.S. Army in 1945 when he was 18 years old and ended up in Korea with the U.S. occupation government. Later, he served as an interpreter at the Kaesong Peace Talks in 1951. You can find his autobiography, What a Fun Life, a medley of memories at an online bookstore near you. Welcome on the show, Dick, and thank you for joining me.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me, Doc.
0: Uh, You were born here in Korea. You grew up and you had to leave Korea as a teenager when Japan declared war on the United States with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Is that right?
1: That is correct, yes.
0: When you left, did you anticipate that you would one day return to a newly liberated Korea?
1: Oh, I was confident of it. Probably fully so, but I was confident of it.
0: Yes. Now, let's start in that very interesting period between the Second World War and the Korean War. Uh, you came back to Korea with the U.S. Army. Was that in 1946? That was in 1945. 45. Okay. So very literally within months of the, uh, of the, the end of hostilities.
1: That's right. If it hadn't been so much red, red tape, I'd have been there a lot sooner I didn't get there until, I think, October, Ah. but most of that time was waiting on red tape in the United States and in Japan. The problem was the Congress had passed a law that no 18-year-old soldier, no soldier under 20, could be sent overseas if he had not completed basic training, Ah. which was a fairly sensible law, meaning don't take these little kids off and shoot them before they know what they're doing. Yeah. However, the war was now over, and I wasn't going to a combat zone because there wasn't any, but the rule still held,
2: Mm. and
1: I had the very queer distinction of being one of the—well, anyway, I was a weirdo because (laughs) I got into the Army through the OSS. I was taken into the OSS first, and in order to do that, they had me drafted in the Army. And then they took me away from the army, but I'm still legally in the army. So when the war was over, they couldn't let me go home. I had, I was still in the army. Therefore I was in the army, but I had never had any basic training. And the OSS knew that I would be of some use in Korea. So they sent me to Korea for, to the army in Korea,
0: yes.
1: but, uh, this rule got in, in the way. And then at the last minute, somebody had the good grace to sign a waiver, mm-hmm. and so I then went overseas as a private uh, with no basic training. I stayed. I'll, I'll come back to this later, but I stayed in Korea then for a year and a half, almost two years, mm-hmm. two and a half, year and a half anyway. And because everybody else was being discharged and sent home, they'd been in, they'd been in real war, no, I hadn't been, and they'd been in real war, so they got sent back to the States for discharge, one after another, yep. and gradually I had to fill their positions, so I ended up as a staff sergeant in the U.S. Army with no basic training.
0: Which is a very rapid promotion.
1: I had promotions, but I didn't know anything.
0: Right. and in a, very, <laughs> in a very, very short space of time. And not only that, as an 18-year-old buck private, you had a uh, uh, the distinction of flying from Washington to Tokyo on a specially chartered plane carrying one other passenger didn't you
1: yes and no oh i don't know what was behind it but there was only one other passenger on the way from the united states to the hawaii yep. and then there were about four from no i'm sorry four or five from the states to hawaii yep. and then one other after that but there were airplanes flying empty mm-hmm. across the pacific Every thirty minutes to pick up American prisoners of war.
2: Right. And so
1: the empty ships going to Korea were a dime a dozen. Mm. And when I got to Kwajalein Athol, before we got there, I looked out the window and there was oil spouting out of the wing of the plane. Oh. <clears throat> so I thought I go should go tell somebody. So I went up and knocked on the cockpit, and the second the pilot co-pilot came back and looked. And he didn't seem very disturbed, yes. but he went up and talked to the captain, and they never told me anything about it, but pretty soon we landed at Kwajalein, and we weren't supposed to stay there, just get some fuel. Mm-hmm. And I uh, got out of the plane, it was hotter than the 80s, and the lieutenant looked over and said, well, I don't think we're going anywhere, because just been a great big chunk of iron the size of, my, of aluminum, the size of my fist, fell out of the wing. Oh. and out of the oil tank. So he said, go up to the operations office and get yourself by the next flight. Mm-hmm. So my friend and I, my co passenger and I, carried our big duffel bags about, oh, 600 yards in the heat up to the operations office. And the man said, what do you come up here for? The next plane's coming in in five minutes. They mm-hmm. says, we go through here every 15 minutes. And that's the number of planes that were flying over to Asia to pick up American PWs. And so then we turned around and hiked back in the heat and got there just in time to get on the next flight to go. So that was not special planes for me by any means that I can think of.
0: Well, I thought that you shared a plane with uh, Syngman Rhee, who later on became president of uh, South Korea.
1: Well, we haven't gotten there yet. That was Ah. after Guam.
0: Ah, After Guam. Okay.
1: Now, if you want me to continue on this trip, when we get to Guam, they're all battened down for a big typhoon that's coming north, Mm -hmm. and nobody can go anywhere. And everything's locked down, and all the planes are grounded. And then I looked up, and I saw President Rhee in a civilian outfit all by himself, hunched over some sort of a soft drink. And I went over to him and, and politely said, introduced myself and said, Mm -hmm. if there's anything I can do for you, if you'd like me to accompany uh, you on your plane, which I died to find out. uh, He said, Yes, why don't you do that? Just come with me. Mm -hmm. None of this army business. So later on, when his flight took off, and why he took off when nobody else was I don't know, but I was not asking questions. I I threw a copy of my orders into the flight office. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm accompanying this gentleman, Mm -hmm. and went and got on the plane. I don't know whether anybody had a record of me getting on, but I I gave it to him. And and then we flew from there to Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And from uh, then Taiwan, we waited a while, and apparently the typhoon diverted. I don't know. But Ah. from Taiwan, we were able to go. The closer to Japan you were, the less bad the typhoon was. My dad was in the Philippines. I didn't know this then, Mm -hmm. but my dad was in the Philippines and was held up by the typhoon for something like 10 days. So anyway, that's how I got to Japan.
0: And what was it that you were doing in Seoul uh, with the U.S. occupation uh, military government uh, in 1945?
1: I had a number of assignments. Uh, I think probably my most odd assignment was uh, going through all of the Japanese-owned brothels Mm. to make inventory and confiscate the properties. So as a young 18-year-old missionary kid, one of my first assignments in the Army was to uh, take an inventory of the brothels.
0: Were there many of them?
1: Oh, yeah, there were quite a few. Uh The Japanese ran the place, and the Japanese had uh, high respect for the so-called deeds of, of men, and they had I don't know how many, I only went to about six, but other people were going to other ones, Mm. but that was not my favorite job. And and then I was assigned to the uh, enemy alien, so-called alien property division to make inventory of all Japanese owned businesses, houses, Mm -hmm. properties, apartments, hotels, and so forth. And I worked in that for quite a few months and then I got—all of this was under military government, not 24th Corps. Right. But then I got orders to report from military government to 24th Corps, and I was told that I was going to go to Kassong. And I didn't even know I was—I was so out of it. I didn't even know there was a American unit in Kassong, or I knew there were Russians in Seoul, but right. I didn't know there were any Americans in Kass, Kassong. And so— I got myself prepared, got myself packed. And at that time, the border between the north and south was open. It was guarded by Russian and American soldiers, but it yeah. was open. And they had different kinds of trains at different times, sometimes an actual lo- coal coal locomotive with one car, and sometimes just a, a single diesel-powered passenger car, Mm -hmm. but we ran a sort of a railway between North Korea and South Korea for dispatches, supplies, and so forth. And I got on that thing and went to Pyongyang, and that was the only time that I actually personally saw Kim Il-sung, because he was standing beside the road like a soap salesman or something, yelling various things, and I asked somebody, who is that? And they said, oh, that's Kim Il-sung, some politician from Russia.
0: Ah, so. <laughs> and and yeah, you had an interesting job there in Pyongyang working as a driver for senior U.S. officers, but on the side yeah. you did some intelligence gathering work, didn't you?
1: Right. Well, you see, there was no excuse, legal excuse, for that unit of officers to talk with the Koreans at all. They were there as a liaison team to the Russian army. Mm-hmm. So, So I couldn't go around just talking to Koreans because I wanted to, unless I had some kind of a cover. Yeah. And the cover, the cover was that I was to be the driver of these to the colonel and the major. Mm. And in the beginning, they gave us a, I've forgotten, yes, in the beginning it was a Jeep. Yep. And then I said, well, I told our own officers, I I think it would be nice to show off a little bit
2: uh-huh. and
1: have a, a nice new American staff car. Yeah. So they sent us up a latest model, whatever that was. Right. Uh, U.S. Chevrolet, uh-huh. and it was of course all, paint, all painted olive drab, yeah. but it was still a nice looking car. And strangely enough, in Pyongyang in 1945, mm-hmm. early 46, I'm sorry, early 46, uh, there was a big sign on a on a gas garage saying Chevrolet. Uh huh. So I took the car in there, and I said, "Hey, I thought you might like to see what a new model Chevrolet looked like." And huh. uh, I was just—I I talked in Korean, yeah. and they were ecstatic to look at the car and look at all the things that happened. They weren't much different, but and not by like the changes that go into cars today. Yeah.
2: But they were very interested,
1: and then they started talking to me first about the car,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then about the situation there and various things. So I was able to learn a great deal of what all North Koreans knew, everything on the street. It wasn't secret that way,
2: yeah.
1: but the, we didn't really have real information on. And that was my first contact. And then after that, I went to develop some others.
0: Yes. And when did you uh, leave Korea and go back to the United States?
1: Uh, in February of '47.
0: Okay. So you were there for, what, probably about a year and a half, by the sounds of things.
1: In Korea, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I was in North Korea for only about three months.
0: Right. And it was, uh, I mean, in, in both Koreas, uh, politically, it was a very active, uh, perhaps chaotic time. That There were lots of political parties being formed and left-wing activists and right-wing activists with their own street gangs that were fighting against each other. Did you see a lot of
1: that at the time? I didn't see any of it in North Korea. And I don't know that very many people saw it because they mm-hmm. took very quick, quick solution to that. Ah. At least as far as I, I don't, I'm not saying there wasn't any, I'm saying yeah. I didn't see any. Sure. In the South, however, yes, there was quite a bit. There was a real antagonism because General Hodge, before we landed in Korea, before we oh. arrived in Korea, most of Korea was under Korean self-protection units.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: These were just local groups of men young men who would grab a weapon here or there and go out and say, okay, everybody behave. Right. And there wasn't a lot of robbery. There wasn't a lot of rape. Uh, things were more or less under control. The Japanese police were still on the streets because people recognized that it was better to have somebody controlling the streets than nobody. Yeah. But they didn't have the power to arrest you and throw you in jail or stuff like that. They just maintained order. And at the same time, you get out of the big cities and there were often communist or left-wing groups that decided they wanted the power, and then there would be some real fighting. And even after we got there and set things up, there was a lot of internal dissonance. Mm. And I don't want to cover up the fact that there was a strong communist group in the South. There was indeed, but the difference between the communists and the others were the communists were much more willing to enforce their point of view Mm. with a gun or an axe or whatever they had. And so there was quite a bit of conflict. And in the more southern regions, I would say the communists might have been in the majority. I don't know. Mm. But the big problem that came with majority and minority was that the United Nations took... Now, please check me on this because it's a long time ago. And I haven't really thought about it recently. But... The United States passed a resolution that Korea should be under a trusteeship. Mm-hmm. And nobody with any brains that knew anything about Korea would have dared use that word. Yes. Because that is the word that the Japanese used to establish their government in Korea. In 1905, the Japanese set up in Korea a trusteeship. Mm-hmm. We are taking care of you for you. We love you. Right. And then they took over the country for good. Well, when that proclamation or that thing was passed,
2: mm-hmm.
1: everybody, communists, anti-communists, everybody demonstrated against it. Yeah. Mysteriously to us, very mysteriously, the next day, all the leftist parties came out and said, we support the United Nations. Mm. And the rightist parties said, the hell we do. We don't want this trusteeship. Yeah. And so then we had the rightist parties objecting to the UN resolution and the leftist parties supporting it. Yeah. And when it came to, when it came time to have a national election, the Russians refused to recognize any parties or individuals who had not supported the UN resolution. Yes. Therefore, nobody that wasn't communists could could invo- uh, get involved in the national election, which was overseen mm. by the UN. And, Therefore, in effect, we had no election in the North. I mean, that's an awful lot of story in a short time, but yeah. that was the outcome the outcome of a lack of people who understood what words meant. Words mean different to people yep. depending on their experience. And yeah. trusteeship was a very, very dirty word mm. in Korea. And it shows the power
2: yeah. of
1: the communists that literally overnight, all those those communists who had been out demonstrating against the trusteeship suddenly decided, no, no, we want that. So Mm -hmm. they shouted for it.
0: They changed their tune, yes. Now, I'm going to flash forward to 1949, when tragically, uh, as part of all this political friction, uh, your own mother, I believe, was killed in in her home at Yonsei University uh who did that and and why was that ever ascertained?
1: Yes, it was ascertained pretty accurately. There are two men, I forgot if it was two or three at least two, but two or three men who were apprehended by the police mm-hmm. and were in had been tried and convicted uh to, to be executed, and they were in the prison, the Westgate prison in seoul oh, yes. uh, when the war started before that, my father had petitioned that they not be executed. Mm. I think that was a matter of, of almost requirement on his part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, not legal requirement, but ethical or moral requirement. Yes. And the president had refused to accept that
2: mm-hmm. and say they,
1: they were set for execution. And then the war started, mm. Korea, North Korea invaded and set them free ah. so they didn't get punished. And one of those gentlemen, and I'm sorry, I was not there when it happened. I was younger when it happened. My brother Horace would remember the name,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: the name of the man that was, had, of one of the two that had killed my mother was the name of one of the delegates to Panmunjom. But fortunately, after I was there, I did oh, not wow. see him. Goodness me. No. That would have been
0: uh, quite a trauma, I can imagine.
1: I imagine it was pretty hard for Horace because Horace had been yes. right there at the house oh. uh, right after the execution.
0: Oh, boy. Uh, Gosh, uh, that's a a terrible thing to have happened, of course. You were in the States at that time, but you came back um, shortly after the war started. The war, of course, started on 25th of June, 1950. By fall of 1950, you had returned to Korea again with the U.S. military, this time to uh, Tongne, uh, just east of Pusan. What was your job there?
1: Yes. This is ironical. I was sent all the way from the United States with waivers for my commission and waivers for my training and all this. Hurry, hurry, hurry. We get this, mm-hmm. need this man to get there because he speaks Korean. Ah. And I got there, and there was a, a large, it was called um, Advanced Addis. Addis is Allied Translator and Interpreter Service. Okay. And they were set up by MacArthur
2: mm-hmm. during the
1: war, and they came all the way to Tokyo. And then from... Okay, well they sent a unit to Korea and it was called AdVATIS or Advanced Addis and so we were an Allied translator and interpreter service. Yep. And our job was in interviewing and interpreting prison I mean, interviewing and questioning prisoners of war as they were captured. Yes. Where did I where like it get started on this story?
0: Ah, uh, you when you returned to Korea in autumn nineteen
1: fifty. Well, anyway, that's what, what my assignment was in in Korea. Yeah. But When I got there, the Addis service was assigned all sorts of linguists, Mm -hmm. but they weren't assigned anybody who knew how to write English properly. Ah. And so they were ending up with reports in broken English and the bad word, I mean, different words in the wrong order, and nobody could understand them. So I spent full time editing the reports, (laughs) Uh, the other interpreters had, had made and didn't do any interviewing at all yeah. as long as I was at, at uh, Tong Nha. Mm. But from Tong then I was sent up to Wansan and Hung Nam and, and Hamhung on the east coast in the early fall, not early, late fall uh, of 1950 at right. the same time that the Incheon Landing handed happened, and the Eighth Army broke through, and everything changed.
0: Right. That was a very a far advance uh, by the United Nations forces into uh, North Korea, almost uh, as far as the border with, uh, with China and, and the Soviet Union. Uh, and, and
1: a couple of units actually did reach the border with China. Ah. And if, if you have about six hours, I'll talk to you about what MacArthur's part of was in that. Very briefly... I'll tell you facts first, and then I'll tell you a few opinions. Okay. The facts were that when we came to cross the 38th parallel, there was a lot of question as to whether it was legal. Mm -hmm. Were we allowed to go to North Korea? Our mission was to free South Korea of North Koreans, but we went across. We crossed the north-south border, north of, I can't explain it to you without looking at a map, but north of the border and just south of, Pyongyang, Mm -hmm. there is a very narrow little spot of the peninsula, and our military and our Stars and Stripes said the 38th parallel was the cause of this big problem because it was not a defensible line, Mm. and we have to reach a defensible line, and so we're going to that defensible line, and we're going to defend it, and we're going to stop. Mm -hmm. And it was in the Stars and Stripes newspaper and publicly announced on AFK and radio We're going to advance to that spot and then stop. I know these all things, all these things, because I was there and I heard them and I saw them. Mm -hmm. I've never seen them written up this way. I've never seen this explanation. Mm. So either I'm crazy or I'm right. But anyway, this is, these are facts. And I'll give you the conclusion, maybe crazy. The military did not, in fact, stop there. Mm. And they broke through the line. And then MacArthur announced we have no intention of crossing the border into China. Right. And that Chinese people didn't believe him. That that so far is true. And my interpretation is how this is on MacArthur. MacArthur had always wanted to take back China.
2: Uh, he
1: had a sort of a love affair with Chiang Kai-shek. And he wanted to take back China and give it to Chiang Kai-shek. Mm-hmm. And... I, this is a very nasty thing to say, but I think personally mm-hmm. that he wanted to provoke China into a war because he thought the United States would react just the way it did at Pearl Harbor uh-huh. and say, so you can't do that to us, big boy, we're going to zap you. Right. And that, that would finally get, because he wanted a war with China anyway. He said he wanted to go on to, to now he says, to, it was murder to go on to the mainland. But at that time, he wanted to retake the mainland. And in any case, that he wanted us to take a big black eye, broken nose, yeah. because to the 8th Army troops, a normal, normal, I never had basic training. But even I know that when an army advances, it doesn't just start and run forward. It, starts, it stops every once in a while yeah. and prepares a resting place. In case they have to come back and defend something. Right. But he ordered the Eighth Army not to prepare such positions, but to simply proceed north mm. at full speed. Oh, yes. And they did that. And of course, they went like hell bent for leather. Yeah. They went very well because the North Korean Army was in complete, complete dismay and didn't know what they were doing. And they hadn't seen any Chinese yet. They didn't believe they were coming. MacArthur didn't believe they were coming. And so they advanced rapidly and actually, as I said, did receive, did get reach
0: the border at the at the Yala River. Now, Dick, in your case, you went to uh, to Hamhung and and Hungnam, the uh, the yes. uh, large industrial port city on the east coast.
1: And the, the, Marines, the Marines were right in front of us. Uh-huh. And two things I found out about. The Marines, well, one thing really is, well, first place, we all know they fight. But the second was that the Marines simply disregarded MacArthur's orders and did put in, as is written in all of the
2: accounts of of that story, Mm. they put in secondary positions,
1: which as much as their bravery and their skill accounts for their survival Mm. for the Chinese attack. They fell back to the next line of reinforcement. Yep. And they gathered themselves there, and they fought like hell, and then they fell back to the next line, and they got out. The American side, they they didn't have anything to fall back to. Yeah, and so there was no place for them to collect and coalesce until they got all the way down to Fusan Almost, we had not put in a major defense thing, anything from where we broke through mm-hmm. all the way up to there. So that's why so many. American soldiers and British soldiers and Australians and everybody else and certainly Koreans were killed in that terrible mess because there were no plans yeah. set up of where to go and how to get there. And I have been very, very bitter ever since that time because, oh, by the way, I didn't mention, I was doing some intelligence work, quite a bit of intelligence work in Nam and Hongnam and, and Wonsang, mm-hmm. and we captured Chinese prisoners. I had well over a thousand in my own camp, and there were other camps. Long before MacArthur would admit that there were any Chinese soldiers in Korea, mm. we would get an intelligence report from Tokyo every day, telling us what was happening on the ground.
2: Yeah.
1: And every day, every day, for weeks, no evidence of Chicom intervention. Mm. No evidence of Chicom intervention. I had a thousand of them in my camp. Yeah. My good friend, Charlie Bernheisel, who was a captain over at 8th Army, the other side, said the same thing happened to him, mm. that he had a little bit over 1,000 prisoners in his camp when they were still saying no evidence of Chinese intervention. So he was basically telling the American G.I.s on the front line who were getting shot and killed by the Chinese yeah. that there were no Chinese.
2: Gee.
1: So I'm a, I'm a bitter bitter person about him and and his... Leadership at that point, I can't judge his leadership anywhere else in the world. But to my mind, uh, he was he was criminally negligent. If he had been tried, he could mm. have been should have been convicted of criminal negligence. I have been told, and this I tried to distinguish a pigeon in fact here. He has been told I have been told that he
2: had a group of people around him who agreed with him, mm. and
1: if you didn't. Agree with him, you weren't in the group. And his intelligence chief, who I used to know the name of, but I can't remember, one-star general, I think, maybe two-star. Anyway, he Willoughby, Willoughby, Willoughby oh, yes. had, had predicted early in the war, I think, a good prediction. He said, we do not think the Chinese were going to come into the Korean War. Mm. I have no fault with that prediction. It was wrong, but I have no fault with it. Yeah, I think that when they did come in, uh, or until they actually came to nose in, he and MacArthur were trying to prove that he wasn't wrong. Right. So when they appeared to be coming in, he kept saying, they're not coming in, they're not coming in. And then when they did come in, he said, oh, what a total surprise. Never expected this. Hmm. Were you part
0: of the uh, Hungnam evacuation of December 1950? Yes, I was. Uh, tell us briefly uh, what that was like.
1: Well, it was a little bit chaotic. As I said, we had a little over a thousand Chinese prisoners in our camp, mm. and we had to get them out. And so they were very docile. But one camp, one company of American MPs took off, and we took out from the town of Hunnam and went to a little no place. I don't know whether it was a school or what it was, but. Someplace they put those people up for the night, and we were there also continuing to do our work of interrogating. Mm-hmm. But in the later on, I had some time to myself, and I said, I wonder what's happening up in Hungnam Nam. So I turned around and drove back north on the road, and I got to a big roadblock. and Somebody, MP, stopped me and said, uh, where are you going, Lieutenant? I said, I thought I'd go in for, into into Nam to look around the city before it's evacuated. And he said, oh, it's all clear now. There are no American troops north of us, mm. which meant there were no American troops between me and my prisoners and those uh, and the Chinese government.
2: Oh. We had,
1: they had evacuated the front lines right around us. Right. So I was quite nervous until we got out the next day.
2: Gee.
1: And that next day, we took the troops out, the, the prisoners out, and put them on an American ship. And we got on the American ship and I have never seen anything like it for all night long. It never got so dark you couldn't read the newspaper. And that was from star shells fired mm-hmm. by the U.S. Navy to cover the last of the retreating American soldiers so that they wouldn't have to fight in the dark against the Chinese. Right. And it was just absolutely fantastic they shoot up three and two come down and so forth all night. And it just never got dark. And then they blew up all the port facilities. Yeah. And that was very, very dramatic, too. So it was quite a, a dramatic thing. More dramatic in the long term was the fact that they agreed to take out any North Koreans and the anti-North Koreans who wanted to leave. Mm. And that took a great deal of effort in the beginning. They were absolutely told, no, we will not take anybody. That's not our job. We're not going to take you out. Right. And a lot of pressure was put on them by chaplains, by some of the missionaries who were working there and some others. And finally, they agreed. Mm. And so they loaded 100,000 men, women, and children on those ships in about 24 hours and it got them out, which I think is one of the, the beams of humanity in that whole war.
0: It's an incredible feat, isn't it?
1: Yes it is. Now
0: then you ended up in the Kaesong peace talks in mid-July 1951 as an interpreter and you got your older brother Horace involved. How did that come about?
1: Well, my Korean is what I guess is generally called street Korean. Yes. And it's I mean it's it's understandable. Everybody knows what you're talking and it's not necessarily dirty language,
2: mm-hmm. but it's
1: just ordinary common talk. Yep. And I had been working with prisoners and had no trouble. These were ordinary level people. I suddenly bump into admirals and generals that are stock- talking mm-hmm. State Departmentese, yes,
0: not yes. Korean
1: or English. You understand what I mean? Sure I,
0: sir. different vocabulary some of the speeches
1: that we made that I was supposed to in, tell the other side what they meant. I wasn't sure myself. <laughs> I was a I was not terribly old, I wasn't a kid, but I wasn't a college graduate yet. Mm. And they're talking and this is the talking where you have to be very careful of the nuance of the word you use. Yes. And so after the first day, I I just sweat blood and made a made a disgrace of myself. Mm. And as soon as we get out, I went to Admiral Joy and I said, sir, this is beyond me. I can't do it. I'm totally unable to do this. Mm -hmm. Now, even before that, I'd worked with the liaison officers at a low level, and we had no trouble. So I didn't anticipate
2: Mm. this
1: problem. And they didn't either. I went to Castle before that mm-hmm. with Colonel Kinney, Colonel Doro, and Colonel Lee, the three lieutenant colonels, to open the talks. I mean to agree with the with the North Korean as to just where the talks would be. Yes. And when we got there and we landed in the chopper, and we got there they met met us uh mostly in captured American Jeeps and uh they made us they had white flags on the on the vehicles uh, looking like surrender. Mm-hmm. And we didn't like that, but that's what they did.
0: Now, were there no qualified Koreans or Korean-Americans at that time who spoke good enough English to interpret for the U.S. Army?
1: I guess they weren't. They, there were some here and there, but they didn't get them. And I don't know why not, but there weren't very many. Most mm. of them were, would have been the age of my father. Right. And another problem, which is not a terrible problem, but is is a problem, is that most people who learned Korean uh in the missions mm-hmm. learned religious kind of talk.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: And be sort of like asking a minister to get involved in a discussion talk of military affairs. They yeah. they didn't they didn't know the vocabulary, so and I didn't know it either, as a matter of fact. But that was one of the problems. I am one of the things that delights me so much is that there are so many young American and Korean American in the army and out of the army Mm -hmm. who exceed me by hundreds of percent (laughs) in their ability of English and Korean. And I was the best they had. So they well, next best Horace was, Uh, and they used me. And I think we did what we had to do, but it was. It was not a moment of great pride because, well, Horace had a big advantage. He had been trained in Japanese Mm. in World War II. Yes. And therefore, he knew a great many hancha, the Chinese character, on on which both Korean and Japan and China are based. So his vocabulary was infinitely higher than mine because formal vocabulary is largely made of, of Chinese characters.
0: Yeah. Now, were there moments during the negotiations when uh, language, the differences of language, and the act of interpreting between English and Korean and back again had the potential to really influence things for good or ill?
1: Yes, I think so. The the Koreans have see if I can get this straight now a word which can mean good or should either one, mm-hmm. and so when they would make a speech to us in Korean, they would use that word, and the interpreter in English would write down should or must.
2: Yeah.
1: Should, usually. And when they would write it down in their propagandas outside, they would write, I don't know, I'm getting this backwards, but they would write the command. They say, you, you must or you should do this. Right. Whereas to us, they used a different word in their translation. Ah. And also... There were times when the North Koreans simply denied that what they had said had been said, mm-hmm. because we wanted from the beginning to have recordings
0: oh, yes. of
1: all the talk, and they refused.
0: That's interesting. And they
1: refused because things that they said in one meeting, they would simply say, "No, we never said that." Huh. And here we show you the minutes we have of the meeting, and they show you we don't have it. Your minutes are all fake.
2: Ah. Uh...
1: So that was one of the major problems where we shouldn't have given in. Time after time, well, let me back up a minute. I read later that one of the teachings of Russian communist argument, they use vocabulary there, I don't even know, but is that they set up a premise Mm -hmm. and it's only a little bit wrong. And then they argue from that premise and keep pushing each each nuance further to one side to the other and you can't figure out how you got there because you agreed with each of those advances. And all of a sudden, you understand what I'm trying to explain it clearly, but but they did that a lot. And so you'd have to watch out from the very beginning, when they said anything, and we would sometimes have to, we didn't talk, we interpreters, theoretically, were machines, right? And our only duty at the meeting was to take the words out of the mouth of the other guy yeah. and put them into the language of the other one. So our job as Korean interpreters of the U.S. were to take the words of the American officers and put them into Korean or Chinese. Mm-hmm. Did the North
0: Koreans have their own interpreters that were taking the English and, and putting that into Korean for their side? Oh, yes, they did. They did. Did you sometimes, like outside the, uh, the talks, did you have any informal contact with their interpreters?
1: Almost none. Mm. We had a little bit of informal contact with one of their staff officers. But basically, no, we did not have. I don't know the staff officer, Colonel, the North Korea that I had and respected and yeah. liked very much. I mean, I, he was wrong and I was right, but I respected <laughs> him. Uh, I still don't know any of his family problems or any of that. Right. I, we never talked about family.
0: But did you get a sense of how good their English was?
1: Very, very little. I, I think I one time I had a situation that was very odd when I accused their interpreter of misinterpretation. Ah. And I noticed that the colonel in charge immediately looked at two other North Korean officers mm-hmm. and each of them nodded very, very briefly. Yeah. So I think he was confirming with them
0: ah.
1: of whether I was telling the truth or not. Right. And it was a very strange situation because I ended up interpreting for both the, the Korean and the and the American side, which I think is rather weird. Mm. But uh, I and the inter- that interpreter was taken off and eventually executed.
0: Boy, that's a a very tragic end for him.
1: Yeah. But he he had been a traitor in South Korea, and once you're a traitor, nobody trusts you anyway. Mm. So he was up a tree. He was in sad shape.
0: Now, the negotiations dragged on fully for two years, uh, but you ended up going back to the United States and and leaving the army for good uh, in just about a year in, in 1952, didn't you? That's correct, yes. How could they possibly? How could the the U.S. Army have possibly let you go at that point when they needed to negotiate for another year?
1: Because the U.S. Army is run by orders, by operations manuals and kits and so forth. Yeah. When my when I entered the army, I entered on a one-year volunteer service, uh-huh. and I got a temporary commission as a lieutenant. At the end of the year, they came to me and said. Will you sign up for another year? And I said, yes, sure. And I had planned to keep signing up till the war was over. Right. And they came to the end of the second year. And they said, to keep, we said, we came to sign, have you signed up. And I'll say, I'll stay another year. And they said, no, no, no. If you sign up again this time, you have to sign for five years.
2: Oh.
1: And I said, I'm not going to sign up for five years. And so they said, okay, goodbye. I mean, not literally, but.
0: Yes. Did your did your brother Horace stay on and keep interpreting after you'd left?
1: Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Uh huh. And besides which, after that time, as far as making an influence or having a, a some real effect on anything, mm-hmm. was time was long since past.
0: Are, are you saying it was much more uh, much more standardized or or just much more routine the the interpreting uh, by that stage?
1: No, I mean that. Although it was greatly that even from the beginning, yeah. I mean that that we talk about their people out in front, you know, being puppets and having to do what Moscow or Pyongyang says. Mm-hmm. But we're the same way, mm. and our delegates simply did not have authority to make decisions, mm. and therefore everything went back to Washington.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, I think again because I don't like MacArthur. I think part of that is because he completely undermined them so much; they were afraid to argue with him. Mm. That's why he went long before he got kicked out of the army. Yeah, and I think that they had then, that they then jumped 180 degrees other, around the other side and said, "We can't trust our commanders to decide anything. Mm. We're going to decide everything from here in the Pentagon." That's my opinion. Yeah, and I know that on one occasion. I think that put this in the book i don't know but i went into the tent the conference tent, when it was empty and found it wasn't empty that admiral joy was there and he was leaned all over in a in a position he wasn't weeping but in mm. a position of a very great sorrow mm. and i thought that his son who was in korea had been wounded or killed and mm. i went up and i said admiral is there anything in the world i can do for you mm. and He looked at me very bitterly and he said, yes, Underwood, cut the damn telephone lines to the U.S. and we'll have ourselves an armistice.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Right.
1: I am sure that we lost thousands of men because Washington was afraid of losing thousands of men the wrong way. There was a fact there that with with the bombing that we did of Korea, terrible, Mm -hmm. terrible bombing, it took the... North Korean Chinese group, probably 30 days to build up supplies and ammunition for an eight day or seven day fight.
2: Mm.
1: If you look down through the pattern, you'll see that they, they go, everything goes quiet for quite a while. Then North Koreans attack and they drive us back maybe four or five miles yeah. and then they run out of ammunition and stuff. And we drive them back four or five miles to where they were and Washington says, Hey, better stop your fighting. We don't want to extend this any,
2: right. we
1: want to get this over as soon as possible. Whereas the people in the, on the field said, now is the time when they ain't got none. Mm. They don't have any ammunition. They don't have anything. And we've got to keep pushing, keep running when they're running. Cause they don't have anything to eat, mm. but the army has to do what the boss says. Now right. I'm oversimplifying. I'm sure, sure. but this was the pattern that we could see, we who were there, could see time after time. And I think that's what Admiral Joy was referring to.
0: Looking back, uh, how important were the interpreters on both sides in helping to bring the negotiations to an armistice agreement?
1: I don't know. I think there was some importance because Mm. when you interpret from one language to another, oddly enough, you may not even use the same words. Yeah. You have to interpret a meaning. Right. rather than a set of words. And if that is done correctly, then it's good. If it's done poorly, then it's bad. And then then there are a the few occasions. Oh, there's one one really strange one mm. where the ethos or the, the, the general way you talk to each other eh, makes a big difference. You've been in Korea long enough, I think, to know that there is something called high talk and low talk. Yes. You understand that? Sure. Okay. Well, all the implications of that came across when the North Korean, this was in a subcommittee, North Korean Admiral was making a speech, or General, I don't care which North Korean officer, was making a speech, and he referred to General Harrison, mm-hmm. who was chairing the South the American size of this sub-meeting, he ref- spoke of him in low talk.
0: Uh huh.
1: Did I? You got. You have to, or instead of Tangshin and so forth. Yep. And Horace had no opportunity to tell the Admiral what was going on. Uh huh. It was just happening. So when Horace, when the um, American Harrison answered, Horace replied in low talk.
2: Oh, okay.
1: And the other, the North Korean officer was just furious. He was almost bumping up and down in his seat because talking to another equal in yep. low talk is worse than cursing. Mm. It's just intolerable. And his interpreter was only able to, to sort of mutter out, do, 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 do you do, do you know what the interpreter is saying? <laughs> and bless his heart, General Harrison, I think, no, it was Admiral Burke, but it doesn't matter. Our representative was Admiral Burke. Admiral Burke said, General, in the American Army, the Admiral always knows what the officer is doing. <laughs> and then when the meeting was all over, he called Horace over and said, what the hell was going on in there? Right. But it's that sort of situation where nobody, if you looked at the written records, there's mm. no record of that. Right. Because there's no recording of the Korean. Yeah. There's just a statement written in Korean. Mm. but. It just doesn't jump out and hit you. Whereas to me or anybody that is fluent in Korean, you start talking to some government of, of official as new no, or not
2: nah,
1: yeah. this way. And that's just terribly rude.
2: Mm, yeah.
1: So that happened. And there's another time when they, these are nuances of language, I should say. There's where, where the, the problem comes. Right. That if you don't have a gut feeling for it, then you're likely not to recognize it in the writing. Mm. And there were a few times like that, but not very many. Tell you the truth, it was all rather boring because there was just one statement, they made a statement, we made a statement, we made a statement, they made a statement. Mm. And uh, these on both sides were all prepared papers done beforehand. Uh Uh, the, The greatest thing that the the American UN side did for the interpreting was that they allowed us and encouraged us to attend the staff meetings that prepared our position papers. Right. So we not only heard the words, but we knew the emphasis that we our side wanted put on the word
2: mm-hmm.
1: so that when we used a word, we want, if we wanted to put some fudge of meaning in it, then we could. Yeah and could later deny that we said, shall, we said, should Uh something like that. You know what I mean? And so it it did make a difference. And that was the the one thing that really saved us because both Horace and I, he has better vocabulary than I know. Mm. Both Horace and I had to look up a number of the specialty words that were used Mm. and we would stay up after the conference and look those meetings up and make sketches of what we were going to say. And, we were, therefore, confident when we came to some, to some statement that we knew which way they wanted the slant on it.
0: Yeah. And, of course, the, the, those negotiations ultimately reached an armistice in, uh, in July 1953. Have you actually had the chance to look at the texts in English or in Korean of, of the armistice agreement?
1: Long ago. Mm-hmm. Long, long ago. There are some serious errors. Uh-oh. That was... Were permitted, I mean, this is my opinion. Yes. There are serious errors permitted by the UN side that has been causing them a lot of trouble ever since. Mm. And that was that they did, probably Washington wouldn't let them, but they ended up with Kassong and all so close to Seoul that they were within artillery range. It's ridiculous that we should have settled for artillery range. If
2: it, yeah, now right. that
1: they have atomic weapons, maybe it doesn't make any difference. Right. I mean, they can kill you from afar as well as from, from nearby. But to be able to to end the war with your enemy in a position where they can rain artillery on your capital is unfortunate. And another thing, if you want to be a little bit more picky than that, sure. they allowed the DM, the, the militarized line, not the Z, but the DML, To run through the middle of the Han River, down the down the middle of the Han River, and said very sanctimoniously, "Civil shipping of each side will be allowed," Mm -hmm. and everybody would know immediately that that wouldn't happen. That the the city, the the river of Seoul was a major artery into a city. Sorry, the river, the Han River, was a major artery of traffic and supply mm-hmm. in the Seoul. The river used to be jammed with river boats going both east and west, taking stuff into Seoul, taking stuff out of Seoul. And of course, the North Koreans wouldn't let anybody go through there. Yeah. And so the Korean government was faced with still one more big hurdle in trying to recuperate when they couldn't get their normal supply lines in the Seoul. They had mm-hmm. to somehow develop landlines on roads that were ruined. Mm. or railroads, and it was a, a very unfortunate thing. Those are only two little ones, but to me, the sadness deep in my heart is that if we had, if MacArthur had done it right, yeah, I think that the DMZ would now run from somewhere a little south of Pyongyang across to the east coast. North Korea would be a small little country up there. Mm-hmm. Let them exist as a as a buffer between China and North Korea by China and Korea. Yep. And let Korea be about 50% bigger than it is. Mm. And frankly, we would be sad to lose that little bit, but it's not like losing the whole of North Korea and life would have been better and I think it should have happened. Because at that the second time MacArthur lied when he said we're going to go to this line and stay Mm -hmm. I was jubilant. I thought that he actually meant it, and that we would build heavy defense lines. And I still believe that if we had stopped at that point Mm. and built heavy defense lines, that probably North Korea wouldn't, I mean, China would not have come into the war, probably. Mm. And that certainly, if they had come into the war, we could have stopped them, because we were at a prepared defense line, instead of suddenly having them break through all of our lines.
0: Here we are now, almost 70 years after the armistice. Uh, do you hope that a, a true end to the Korean War will come soon, Dick?
1: I suppose if hope is the evidence of things that you're never going to see.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I suppose I hope it. Yes, I hope it. Mm-hmm. But if hope means expectation of, if, I, if you would say, do I expect that they will get together? I would say only if some very interesting things happened. I can give you a formula, but it doesn't prove it'll work.
0: How did you feel when you saw a couple of years ago uh, the United States president meeting with the chairman of North Korea? Uh, did you think, oh, if the interesting things are happening. We might see a change.
1: Yes, I did. I was very optimistic. I didn't like, I do not like Mr. Trump,
2: mm-hmm. and I did
1: not like Mr. Trump. But I thought that he had done the only thing that might have gotten us off to a good start. Mm. The main The thing that North Korea and Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il want is to feel that the world recognizes them as great geniuses and great leaders. Yeah. And they want to be treated equally. They don't want to be treated like a dirty neighbor. Mm -hmm. They don't want people rubbing their nose in the dirt. They want somebody to come up and say, Mr. President or Mr. Chairman, so glad to meet you.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then trump broke the whole thing in my opinion by saying by agreeing without any quid pro quo mm. that we would stop the joint korean american
0: the exercises
1: operations the, you know the annual the annual exercise the big fight yeah you know what i'm talking about
0: yeah the annual exercises yes
1: yeah that's one of the things that kim had been yelling at for 30 years mm. or 40 years and he just gave it away and in my opinion That immediately gave the signal to Kim Mm. that we really wanted to get this done. And we would fall over and do what they said to get it. And now that may be putting too much emphasis on one thing. Mm. But as soon as I heard that, my heart just went dead.
0: Now, Dick, you're 94 now. Uh, Your family has a very uh, special and and long relationship with Korea. You've spent significant uh, moments of your life here. How do you feel about Korea?
1: Uh, I feel very sad. I, as I said earlier, I don't expect that to happen. I, and of course, you know, if wishes were horses, we'd all be riding around, I suppose. But <laughs> the, to me, the answers are probably wrong because I'm of the wrong generation and grew up. Anyway, I would have suggested if anybody had, had been dumb enough to ask me what we should do,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I would have said, tell the North Koreans they can build all the bombs they want, all the rockets they want. We have established 17 rockets aimed at 17 strategic points in North Korea. And the first time a rocket leaves about the country of Korea, we will destroy the country. Mm. They would not, I would have not have made that necessarily a public operation statement. Yeah, I would have made it to the Korean government. I said, this is what we will do. Mm -hmm. If you want to if you want to sound big and be able to toot your horn, and you said you and you defeated the US, then we will let you we will say we'll announce publicly that we will let you build all the weapons you want. You're a sovereign country, Mm. you can do what a sovereign country wants to do. But I want you to know that I don't even have to pull push the trigger. There's an American (laughs) general somewhere that test to just push one trigger, and you. I'm, I'm making up the numbers, yeah. and 17 atomic bombs are going to land on you. Then I would tell China what I had done. Mm. And I said, would have said, we really regret, and you're terribly sorry about this, old boy, because you'll probably get some dust flown in from this mess, mm. but uh, this is what we had to do. And then China would be after them to not use them too. But that may be too simple. I, I know I'm a child in this. I'm just, I'm not a diplomat. I'm not an international politician. I'm just, that's the way I would deal with uh, I was dealing with my, my neighbor and we had a fight.
2: Yeah.
1: I would say we got to have whatever it is, strategic equality. I mm-hmm. can kill you and you can kill me. But when I kill you, you're going to be all dead. When you kill me, you are only get one, on, one or two cities. I'm not a military strategist.
0: Right. As, as you said before, you you barely, uh, well, you didn't even have basic training. You you kind of got the fast track uh, into
1: right. the military. <laughs> yeah. I'm a complete outsider. That's why I can make all these statements that are probably ridiculous.
0: Uh, but we, uh, we're going to have to end it there today, Dick. I want to thank you for coming on the NK News podcast and telling us about some significant moments of your life in Korea. Uh, and I'd like to encourage our listeners to check out your autobiography called What a Fun Life. Uh, It can be ordered uh, online, and it's full of lots of interesting stories from uh, your many years uh, in Korea.
1: Thank you very much. Good talking to you, and have a very good day to come. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Dick, and good health to you in the future. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast today. If you're already a member of NK News, we do encourage you to consider upgrading to an NK Pro subscription where you'll find lots of tools and data that is only available to NK Pro uh, members. And if you are interested in that, inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. If you have any feedback or questions or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks as always to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our new post-recording producer genius. Thanks for listening again next time.